Welcome to ShopCast, talking retail strategy with your host, Michael Dart. In this program, we'll spotlight the changes you need to know about in the world of retail shopping and help you plan for the future of the industry. Now, here is Michael Dart. Good morning and welcome to ShopCast. I'm Michael Dart and I'm your host. And I'm very excited about today's show. We have two great guests. Uh, We're going to be talking a lot about the digital world, how to win in the digital world, uh, with a particular focus on Amazon and uh, how to think about both participating on Amazon with Amazon. Welcome to ShopCast, talking retail strategy with your host, Michael Dart. In this program, we'll spotlight the changes you need to know about in the world of retail shopping and help you plan for the future of the industry. Now, here is Michael Dart. Good morning and welcome to ShopCast. I'm Michael Dart and I'm your host. And I'm very excited about today's show. We have two great guests. Uh, We're going to be talking a lot about the digital world, how to win in the digital world, uh, with a particular focus on Amazon and uh, how to think about both participating on Amazon, with Amazon, but also how to think about potentially competing against Amazon for brands and obviously for retailers as well. For that part of the conversation, I'm really excited to have Charlie Cole join me. Charlie is Global Chief E-Commerce Officer for the Samsonite Corporation. So I'm looking forward to that conversation. I'm also looking forward to discussing the latest trends in mergers and acquisitions. And uh, I'm going to be joined by a colleague from Atikani. Uh, Bahij El Reyes, who has just written and co-authored a major report looking at all of the latest trends in what is happening in consumer and retail uh, around mergers and acquisitions. Obviously, there's been some very big ones, most notably, of course, Amazon buying Whole Foods. Uh, There's been a couple of huge acquisitions in the pet food space. And we're going to be discussing what the trends are, what's driving it, and what are some of the implications. So very excited to go into both of those. A little bit of background just to kick off. Obviously, we're going to be talking about uh, the digital world and Amazon. And as uh, regular listeners might know, we've been spending quite a lot of time talking around Amazon and how to think about it. Uh, For most brands, there's really a three-part strategy that they have for their distribution. That is to go direct to consumer. Uh, That is a combination of e-commerce, websites, potentially just owned retail stores. Uh, Secondly, working with other retail wholesale partners in their physical locations and uh, uh, their e-commerce and direct-to-consumer channels as well. And then the third choice, of course, is how to play on the online marketplaces and how one should think about that. And obviously, Amazon is the dominant force there. Now, it's not an easy thing to think about. Uh, Many of you may remember the French publishing company, if I say it correctly, Hachetta, who didn't like Amazon's terms, tried to argue back, push back, and trying to get something better, and then suddenly found that their shipments were late, the recommendation engine was not recommending their products versus competitors, and Amazon was using a lot of influence and weight to bring them to terms in terms of the uh, the contract that they wanted. Uh, ultimately, they got to a good point. Uh, they arguably had more control over pricing, but it demonstrated the power that Amazon has for brands that are actually selling through Uh, that particular channel. And although they got a lot of power over pricing, one of the phenomena that occurs on Amazon, of course, is that you have so many uh, third-party sellers 
that the algorithm that Amazon uses to set prices for its own products basically feeds off those. So I was looking at uh, uh, the site, and if you looked at a 34-ounce uh, uh, package of Pantene Pro-V shampoo, uh, one of the major uh, brands, of course, that are out there, uh, even though they try and set a price, of the listings, nine of the ten were actually third-party sellers, and they could set their prices, and then Amazon feeds off that price. So actually maintaining price integrity on a marketplace is very challenging for a brand. This is just one of, of many of the, the issues and topics that uh, uh, everybody faces. So we're going to dive straight into that and discuss that in detail. Let me formally introduce my guest, uh, Charlie Cole. As I said, uh, he is currently the Global Chief E-Commerce Officer for the Samsonite Corporation. Prior to that, he was the Digital Chief Officer for Toomey. Uh, they were acquired by Samsonite in 2016. And he now oversees all of the global strategy for the brand, such as, such as Samsonite, the American Tourister, Hartman, Gregory, High Sierra, and others. The uh, reason I'm looking forward to this conversation so much is that uh, Charlie brings an incredible mix of entrepreneurial and institutional corporate knowledge uh, to the topics we'll be discussing and has a, a lot of energy and uh, objectivity. And uh, prior to all of these, he's been even a CEO of a company called The Line and has worked in e-commerce at Lucky Brand and Shift Nutrition. So, Charlie, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Michael. Uh, first question I always love to ask my guest is, how did you get into retail and why are you so passionate about it? Well, you know, the the retail for me was, was sort of a happy accident. Um, I, I kind of started in the space via digital marketing, and, and that was my thing. I, out of college, I was a mathematics kind of guy. I was always good with numbers and, and parlayed that into an analyst role. And from an analyst role, I became part of the leadership team at an online agency. And the online agency did digital advertising for a number of different types of company. And we were ultimately acquired. And after that acquisition, I was 24 years old and living in the Los Angeles area. And Lucky Brand Jeans had, had gone through a bit of a transformation. They had been sold to a holding company called Fifth and Pacific, which was previously known as Liz Claiborne. And uh -huh. they had an entirely new leadership team. And the CEO that was installed there basically had a network that allowed him to fill all of the various roles for people from his past. And, and when it got to the head of e-commerce, he kind of drew a blank and, and started asking around. And that's where he came to me. And, and I was uh, newly uh, acquired, if you will. I was going to say unemployed, but acquired sounds way more impressive. <laughs> um, so let's go, let's go with acquired. Um, and he dropped me a line. He's like, hey, do you, do you want to come interview? And I came and talked to him. And I never really thought about retail, and I never really thought about it specifically. But when I got there, it became abundantly clear to me that sort of my core strength, which was in the world of kind of manipulating digital marketing via statistics and analytics and applying it to solve a problem, was not something that was ubiquitous in fashion. Right? And I had just mm -hmm. come from the lead generation world, and the lead generation world Everybody sort of thinks like me, acts like me, talks like me. And, and when I got into the retail world, it was clear that there was a real opportunity to combine with what they were good at, which was sort of creative and merchandising with what I was good at. So, like I said, a happy accident, but I, I haven't really turned back since. It's really interesting. Nearly every single guest I've had so far on the show has had a happy accident in terms of how they've ended up in retail, which is, uh, <laughs> uh, which is really interesting. Um, so you started off there, and did, did you start immediately uh, in the digital space? It sounds like you did, and analyzing data, et cetera. I was curious uh, um, what you learned from that experience and, uh, and how your career evolved from there. 
Well, I, I frequently refer to Lucky Brand as the only job I ever quit. And the, the reason I say that is all my other uh, jobs have ended in some sort of, of acquisition or some sort of kind of there was always a goal in mind and we achieved that goal. And that is sort of a, a nice way of saying I think the most I learned from making this pivot from digital marketing, digital analytics, which honestly, like I was agnostic. It doesn't, didn't matter if I was supporting a pharma company or a mattress company mm-hmm. or um, a, a life insurance company, right? Like the, the methodology and the core strengths you were using were virtually the same. And what I realized after two years at Lucky Brand is that, frankly, in retail, there's a heck of a lot more going on, right? And there is a need to sort of weave what I was good at with other people's core strengths, which, which frankly, um, I'm not sure I was quite ready for from a maturation perspective. And, and specifically in retail, the reality is this. The reality is that digital is a support function, right? And the core function is the product. And the core function is the creativity of the brand. And, and I'm not sure, Michael, I was, I was ready to, to know that when I was 25 years old, right? Where mm-hmm. I had come from analytics, 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 the numbers are right, to hell with brand. All that matters is that we do things more efficiently than the next guy, and we have to make sure that we manipulate all the words on our website so we manipulate SEO algorithms. And, you know, I remember one of the first big fights I had with our creative director at Lucky Brand was we, in our top navigation, like the most important part of any website, had a section called Denim. And I remember just being flabbergasted, flabbergasted that I couldn't mm-hmm. convince him to change it to jeans. Because I was like, you know, 10 million people a month type in jeans into Google as opposed to 600,000 for denim. And he looked at me like, well, that doesn't matter because denim sounds cooler. And, you know, 26, 27-year-old Charlie at this point was certainly not ready to understand that. (laughs) And so, you know, for me, that that pivot from digital advertising centricity to retail centricity, I I think, took a lot of learning and self-awareness on my side to really appreciate the the creative artistry that goes into building a great brand. Mm -hmm. Can I pick up on the first thing you said, which is uh, the digital... Uh, space is really a, a support space for the rest of the business because there's so many <clears throat> businesses starting which are you know, described now as digitally native brands, you know, typically digitally native vertical brands, where the digital aspect seems so much more than just a support element. I'm curious if uh, you have a thought or reflection on that. Well, I, I just don't think in today's world um, that great brands are built by out tacticing the tactic team if that's not a word and certainly it's not um the next guy or girl right Mm -hmm. like so you look at the unbelievably successful brands i don't think warby parker would have worked if their products sucked right Right. so like you can make an argument that warby parker sort of started the move towards digital nativeness or whatever it may be but i think what warby parker got right first was that while sure they started in digital they were remarkable brand marketers, and they made a product that people loved. And right. so, I think if you're, I think if you're brilliant digitally, that doesn't help you make up for a, a deficient product. And I think that's what I mean by that: is that it, yeah, it could very well be table stakes that you're good at digital, and that you're that maybe you're very good at digital. But I think your core DNA and your core focus always has to be the brand and the product first, because um, you know digital excellence is like going to make up for a deficiency in that in that environment. I think that's a really interesting point as well, because uh, without 
the the dynamics in the eyewear market, I think you're right. Warby Parker wouldn't necessarily have taken off so strongly because they actually come under a big price umbrella. So their product actually is a lot lower cost. And that it's a great product as well. And that has been one of the drivers. And obviously, the uh, digital part of it has been uh, what's made them grow so fast. So I think uh, that's actually a really excellent uh, an excellent point. Now, tell well, me, and, and when I think, Michael, like, I think if you were to ask a, a, a longtime Warby Parker customer, um, yeah. if you ask them, hey, like, why did you buy Warby Parker the first time? I may, I may believe that they would say, well, I thought their storytelling and their website was really cool. Like, okay, mm-hmm. great. Why did you buy it the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth time? It's not the website anymore, right? At that point, you, you actually have to cr- create a different value proposition with the consumer. And, and I think that's where sometimes um, e-commerce operators or digital marketers, and, and, and I'm including myself in this group when I was 25, 26, we kind of have a lot of hubris, right? And, and we just are like, well, you know, we can, we can shine up anything with the right mix of ad text and click-through rate optimization where we can drive down the cost per click so much that our conversion rate will be – doesn't really matter because the cost per acquisition is so low. And then you stop mm-hmm. and you're like, but that's not really mat- – that's not what really matters, right? It's not what really matters about a lasting, profitable brand. And, and that's where I think it, it took me a long time to, to learn that. Because it's really relatively easy now to acquire customers or to get trial, isn't it? Um, that's because you can reach so many customers through – uh, the digital landscape and through social media and other avenues, et cetera. But it seems to me without the brand, without the excellent product, all of the ancillary services behind it, it's very, very hard to hold a customer and even to grow. Would you think that's fair? Yeah, and I think it serves as a really interesting kind of meta question for this entire conversation and with your introduction, which is why does someone shop with you? Right? Mm-hmm. Like, and so just like forget all the other stuff. Right. So forget online usability and site load times and cost per clicks and cost per thousands and conversion rate and add to cart rate. And these numbers that, frankly, are a daily ritual for me. And that's not a bad thing. It's part of my job. But strip back all those layers of minutia and ask yourself, why do customers shop with you? Right. And if you can't answer that question in a way that a venture capitalist would believe. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure it matters if you're a hundred year heritage brand or a two month old quote unquote digital native brand, because differentiation between, well, the way we're going to build our brand is we're just yeah. so much better at digital marketing acquisition than other people. I'm not sure that's sustainable. You know what I mean? Because I'm not even sure, yeah. especially, especially today where, where I talked to you today, Michael, where um, digital marketing's future it's probably more uncertain than it's ever been, right? When you, when you think about Mark Zuckerberg being hauled up in front of Congress, and even though he basically tap danced around him for two days, um, right. there's, a level of da- there's a level of downward meta pressure on digital marketing where if I'm looking around and that's what I'm hitching my wagon to, I, I can't even necessarily look you in the eye and predict what that ecosystem is going to look like in three years. So, you know, I think it's just very important that we all have a very simple ask for what the, the customer value proposition really is. Do you think brand building has substantially changed in the digital world? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so uh, I, I want to be very clear that being building a brand in a digitally native world is very different. You know, it, I think back to the world of CPG, right, where it was points of distribution, um, doing co-op buys with supermarkets to get top shelf space and, you know, making sure 
you mm-hmm. do a, a focus group where you get 100 people in a fishbowl and you ask them why they like this color red as opposed to off red as opposed to orange red, right? Like, so that world is basically uh, entirely been flipped on its head. Um, and it's largely been based on the ability for a brand to touch a consumer in a thousand different ways if they want to and not be limited to the physical, right? And so I always have to remind our team that, again, digitally native people, people that grew up in the e-commerce world, that when they're talking to someone who spent their entire career, let's just say for the sake of, uh, sake of ease, designing store windows, mm-hmm. that when you're, when you're trying to prepare a visual merchandiser who spent their entire life in the offline world and you're trying to prepare he or she for the digital world, you have to start with saying, so the first thing you have to realize is if you want to, you can serve a different landing page to every single person. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's just like that's just an entirely different idea and, and frankly, something that would be overly fanciful if you were to live it to the physical world. So that serves to me as, as a great kind of metaphor for for digital. What what change with brand building, which is different mediums, different ability for personalization. The speed to market to change things is wildly different. And not only that, when you think about the overarching marketing ecosystem, you have people raising their hands telling you what they want. Right, so mm-hmm. I get to I get to speak to someone differently if they type in luggage versus they type in leather luggage versus they type in small luggage. It used to be that all you knew is they walked into a luggage store, right? right. So uh, yeah, the digital ecosystem has has certainly turned it on its head, and, and it'd be naive to uh to over to, to understate that I should say. Well, we're going to take a short break. Uh, I'm speaking with Charlie Cole. He's global chief e-commerce officer for the Samsonite Corporation, and we'll be right back. the boardroom to you voice america business network only 12 percent of companies from the original fortune 500 list remain on the list today how do you ensure your organization stands the test of time at carney works with fortune 500 companies every day to answer this question visit atcarney.com to find out more The American consumer market will soon include six generations for the first time. Prepare for the era of personalization and total connectivity with insights from consumers at 250. Join the conversation at atcarney.com forward slash consumers dash 250. Is email an important part of your business? It is for us. That's why Voice America partners with MailJet. MailJet lets us create impactful newsletters and deliver them right to the inbox fast. Microsoft, MIT, and Avis trust MailJet for their emailing, and so should you. Go to MailJet.com and use the promo code VOICEAMERICA to start emailing for free today. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're tuned in to ShopCast, talking retail strategy, featuring Michael Dart as your host. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to ShopCast. I'm Michael Dart, and I'm here with uh, Charlie Cole. And as I mentioned, Charlie is the Global Chief E-Commerce Officer for Samsonite Corporation. And we're talking about how to win and compete in the digital age. So, Charlie, um, 
What do you think an established retailer, an established brand has to think about today to be successful in the digital world and what aspects are most critical for them to focus on? Well, I think I alluded to this in the lead up, which is, you know, be true to yourself and and understand why your brand is going to win, right? And look, the answer can be price. That's a totally acceptable answer, but you have to be very clear that that's why you're going to do it. It can be um, that you're going to offer a much better technology. I mean, whatever it is, you, you have to synthesize that point of view and be proud of it and have it be part of your DNA. And I think, Michael, your, your lead-in actually prefaced something that I think is really important, which is what is your channel strategy, right? Because mm-hmm. in that sort of three-headed hydra that you referenced, your strategy has to be fundamentally different if it's going to be predominantly retail, predominantly wholesale, or predominantly marketplace, and even split between the three, you're going to disregard wholesale. I mean, there is no perfect answer here. And so you have to kind of appreciate the six permutations you have in front of you and decide which one's the right for you and then tailor your strategy accordingly because they're not the same, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. being a direct consumer-focused brand is a much different challenge than being a wholesale different brand. And marketplaces come with a whole set of of values. So I would say start with those two. And as an established brand, if you don't answer those two, frankly, the rest of them are are really irrelevant. And then finally, I I did sort of reference this also. It goes with what is your brand DNA. But answer the question of why someone's going to shop directly with if you are DT-focused, right? Because if you win in direct-consumer, in this world of product ubiquity that the internet has now manifested with marketplaces, you're probably going to have to come up with a reason that someone's going to shop directly with you as opposed to Amazon, Alibaba, Nordstrom, Bloomingdale's, eBay, whatever. So I, I think that might be a little bit redundant with the first point, but I really mean how are you going to differentiate on product strategy and then how are you going to differentiate your direct consumer strategy if it is part of your overall channel group? Well, that takes us into a really interesting topic, I think, which is you've got a great brand, you've got a great product, uh, but you're one of many great brands, many great products, and now you're selling through Amazon. And a lot of people have been out there saying Amazon is out there to destroy brands. That's what it wants to do. Um, What do you think about that? And then are there certain things you need to be doing in order to manage your brand, given that's a potential threat or likelihood to, uh, to what might happen? Well, I mean, look, this is something that I feel like I've, I've started to become a bit of a, a voice of, of contrarianism, which is sort of shocking to me, right? Because, you know, the head of Amazon literally said, your margin is my opportunity. And it's mm-hmm. like everyone thought, it's like he was thought we were joking, right? So if margin is important to a brand, which I think we can both agree it is, yeah. <laughs> if margin is important to a brand, then yeah, you bet they're trying to kill brands. But I think if I think if to be a bit more thoughtful about it, I think Amazon trying to commoditize everything, right? Because if you commoditize everything, then you put the onus on brands to differentiate. And in a marketplace environment, that's music to Amazon's ears, right? Because they don't have to do any more work, and their percentage of revenue is the same, and their level of effort is the same. So you know, I, I think in a way, I feel comfortable saying, yeah, Amazon's trying to kill kill brands. But in a more specific way, I think they're trying to commoditize brands. So I think the question becomes, going back to this idea of strategy, if you're going to win on price, and that is your strategy, mm-hmm. I think you have to be on Amazon, right? And you have to win, and you have to be obsessed with it. It's like 
you have to be obsessed with how do you get the number one position organically for your key unbranded terms, right? So let's just say within our portfolio, I think about American Tourster, right? American mm-hmm. Tourster is, is sort of our entry-level luggage brand or travel brand, and it needs to win on Amazon. And we are we're focused on offering the best product offering on Amazon out of anybody. But at the same time, we have to be somewhat realistic that it's, if it's going to win, we have to understand Amazon's ranking algorithms, and we have to invest in Amazon's AMS platform, and we have to do this. And I think a really good exercise, Michael, for people to do, and, I, and I've said this before, is open an incognito window. And the reason I say that is because then your own history doesn't screw it up, and you don't get all these personalized stuff from Amazon. And type in 10 completely non-brand modified terms, right? So... For example, terms like luggage in MySpace or handbags mm-hmm. or running shoes or whatever it may be, and just see what shows up. And what you'll see with Amazon in the United States, I would say 95 times out of 100, is cheap stuff, right? It is not going to be premium price product. It's not going to be even mid-tier price product, maybe when you get into like row two, row three. But people are trying to win on price. And so for that reason, if you're going to be a successful brand – you have to think about how brands, that, how Amazon's going to work for you, right? So for American Tourister, it's a strategic part of our business. For mm-hmm. Tumi, you know, I would bet our entry-level carry-on is four to five times more expensive at an MSRP level than it is for what's showing up first on Amazon. That said, a hell of a lot of people are typing in luggage into Amazon, right? So I, I don't think it's the thoughtful thing to say, well, we shouldn't be there altogether, but it changes our tactical needs when it comes to Amazon. What it means is we have to make sure there's no unauthorized resellers of our product on the platform because we don't want to have somebody get a negative experience with our brand, even though we had nothing to do with it. That's a risk that comes with marketplaces. It means that we have to make sure that the products we're offering on Amazon are core to our brand, but we have to make sure we're segmenting what we offer on our direct consumer uh, line because we want to be different. We want to offer something better to someone who's shopping in our store. So, you know, I know it's a bit of a long-winded answer, Michael, but it, I think it, it offers a variety of challenges and a variety of opportunities. And what you do is entirely reliant on where you are on kind of the pricing continuum on the platform. Mm-hmm. How, how does Amazon's search algorithm work? Do you have a good understanding of that? I mean, why is it throwing up everything just based on price predominantly? Oh, man. If I, if I knew how to answer this question, like, definitively, I, I would have the best agency in the entire world, and, and I wouldn't, I'd be, like, on a beach in, you know, Sardinia right now. So well, I'll give well, you my take opinion, me with you. But, but, I, but, I, um, but I don't consider myself necessarily an expert. I mean, look, they, they'll tell you that a lot of stuff that matters is optimizing the content of your website or on, on your page, uh, the A-plus detail pages, getting reviews. Um, doing Vine, Vines, which are basically like sponsor reviews, having video content, et cetera. Um, but I think what you're finding is much like Google over the last 10 years, the Amazon results that we're getting now are markedly different than they were three years ago. And the reason being is they have started more and more and more and more to prioritize their, their AMS product, their Amazon marketing service product, where I think it used to be you would see one sponsored result at the top, and ironically, they've really done the Google playbook where Google, it started with just text ads and you would pay a cost per click for text ads. And then they're like, well, we could also do product listing ads, which has now become kind of the Google shopping. Um, Amazon's kind of gone through that same metamorphosis where now if you type in luggage into your Amazon list, chances are you'll see four to five sponsored results. And it's kind of the quietest billion dollar business 
that came up underneath Amazon's umbrella that, I mean, literally, they did Google's playbook from the late 90s to early 2000s. So I, I think optimizing for the organic algorithm is important, and you need to kind of do all of those things. But also, um, if you really want to rank highly and get a good amount of traffic initially for a new product in Amazon, uh, AMS is becoming more and more of a reality. What do you think is uh, the likely impact of Alexa on all of this? Because to the extent there's going to be a lot of uh, voice-driven uh, purchases, there's going to be you know a lot less searching and people looking around. It gives Amazon presumably a lot more power in terms of what they offer up, why they offer it up, uh, because the consumer is arguably not even close to the device. I know they're going to be having interfaces with it as well so that you can be, but uh, I guess the goal over time would be I just I just say, hey, Alexa, I'd like some luggage, and then it will immediately just respond with a few choices. What do you think is that, that yeah. likely impact? Well, and, and I would presume, Michael, and, and maybe it's because I'm a, I'm a little bit cynical after 15 years of, in this crazy space, um, that whoever comes up first is going to pay for it, right? And, and you know, J.P. Morgan, I think, estimated that Amazon's ad revenue this year is going to reach $4.5 billion, right? That's, well, that's not yeah. a random event. And so, you know, I, I think that there's a couple of things. So there is a meta here. Right. And Google and Amazon and, and all and Apple can try to drive the meta. But consumer behavior would have to fundamentally change in a way that would make that medium really meaningful. Right. And, and I'm not sure uh, if anybody's ever going to be like, hey, Alexa, I'm leaving for New York tomorrow. I need to buy a piece of luggage. You know, what I mean, I think we have a long ways to go on the meta there. That said, um, if I am at Tide or at Procter & Gamble, um, I'm probably having daily conversations with Amazon asking the exact same question to them, Michael, that you just asked to me. Because mm -hmm. I think that consumer behavior is starting to change as it pertains to replenishment skews. Right? right. When you think about Ziploc bags, milk, um, especially with the acquisition of Whole Foods, I have to think that the acquisition of Whole Foods was not in response to, but reinforced by the movement towards voice. Because I, I really think voice's near-term future is in replenishable SKUs. And so for that reason, I think that offers Amazon an entirely new minute medium to monetize, which is why, frankly, I don't think it's a random event that their biggest competitor is Google, who has been the greatest monetizer of information ever up to this point. You know, mm -hmm. So I think it's just going to give them another medium that allows people to bid. And you know, it, it, within Google and Amazon up to this point, it's, it's always been on a cost-per-click basis. Here, it'll probably be more like a good old-fashioned cost per thousand basis where if my voice ad is responded to you a thousand times, I pay a certain percentage because otherwise, is it like cost per query? I don't know, but that's the, um, that is probably the next ad frontier in the near term. And the challenge that uh, the scenario you just painted on, the replenishment items uh, that, that is created for a lot of the manufacturers, is presumably this is the ideal path that Amazon can now go down to create its own private label products. So if oh, I, yeah. even if I ask for a branded product, you know, detergent, then Alexa presumably in the not too distant future is going to turn around and say, actually, you know, Michael, do you want to try this new product? And it could have potentially the Kirkland type of great branding that uh, Costco's done. And by the way, it's got all of these great reviews, et cetera. Why not try that one? And that just seems like a huge potential threat to uh, uh, the big CPG companies. Well, and I'll, I'll, I'll kind of, throw some more salt in the wounds of those CPG companies, Michael, which is the data that CPG companies are providing the Amazon platform is going to make that product offering that much better. 
right? And that's like the rea- that's like the vicious circle to end all vicious circles, which are okay. I'm going to put up a marketplace. I'm going to put a bunch of products up there. I'm going to start selling the products. I'm going to start advertising all the products. So I understand what consumers are enticed by. Oh, and then by the way, I'm going to make a product based on everything I learned from you. Not only I'll reduce your margins on the product, and then I'll start charging you advertising, and then I'm just going to take your business altogether. And yet, here we are, and people still seem shocked that Amazon's trying to kill their business. And I just don't get it, right? And, and, that's, and that's why I think that this, this sort of naivete um, needs to be at least kind of confronted, because there are certain realities in today's world, which are, look, in the United States, if you're a CPG company, a lot of people are starting their journey for whatever your product is on Amazon, right? So I can't wave a magic wand and change that. So you have to figure out how to play the game. But just don't have your head in the sand, right? Because I think that right. what I just described is playing out on a daily basis. And yet I, I go to these retail shows, like these conferences, and people act like they can't believe it. And that goes back to kind of my core point, which is if you're going to survive as a brand today, what is going to be that thing that makes you special? Because right. in that cycle that I just described, the answer is not price and it's not reach and frequency because Amazon's going to have every advantage there is in those two areas. So hopefully, hopefully the real winner here is the end consumer because you actually start getting much better products that have to differentiate from a commoditized price point. That, I suppose, right. would be the, the, the rosy view on, on the future. Let me take one angle of, of what you said as well. A lot of a lot of companies believe and talk a, a lot about personalization. And I've just had this uh, issue with it that most companies just don't have the data that Amazon has. In fact, nobody has the data Amazon has. And so how can you possibly personalize on the level that Amazon is going to personalize to be competitive over time? Because they're going to know you so much about your household, your family, your relatives, yourself, what you buy. They should be so incredible at that that everybody else's investments in personalization just could look really weak in comparison. And am I being too negative because of that, or, or do you think it's that's a realistic scenario? Well, I don't think you're being negative. I, I think everything you just said is true, right? Like, so Toomey.com or hell, the entire Samsonite portfolio.com total traffic and total page views is a pittance compared to that of Amazon, right? Like, that's not me being negative. That's just true, right? But I think when you have that level of data um, and you're relying on algorithms to optimize it for a certain metric, right? And maybe that metric's conversion. Maybe it's click-through rate. Maybe it's time on site. Whatever, right? There's a machine behind the scenes that is optimizing for some metric. Um, That in itself starts to be quite robotic, Right. So if I went on Amazon right now, right, right now, um, I'm where my wife and I are having a baby on May 12th. So mm-hmm. chances are, chances are um, it would serve, serve me with a bunch of stuff for babies because I bought gobs and gobs of baby stuff off of Amazon over the last month. Yeah. But what they don't know is that I was actually going on Amazon because my wife and I are planning our baby. Move. Now, if I went on Toomey.com, all of that pre-existing data as it pertains to baby stuff doesn't paralyze to me. It actually empowers us. And what personalization means to us is, look, we know we're not everything to everyone, but we also have a good amount of data as it pertains to travel. And we're going to be able to personalize in that specific context and niche better than anyone else because we're not paralyzed by all that other stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think it's like 
you, you go to Walmart for certain things, and you also go and get custom suits, right? And I, and I think you always have to think about that where, yes, you're right. As it pertains to algorithms and machine learning, Amazon is going to kill everybody as far as to just general mathematics. However, yeah. that level of when you offer a gajillion SKUs, chances are you might not get the emotional side right every time. And that can be a disadvantage, especially in the premium space. Yeah. No, that's really interesting. I think an, another company who did an incredible job against Amazon, obviously, uh, is Chewy.com. I don't know if you're familiar with them, the uh, the pet food guys. Totally, yeah, yeah. Uh, but they just realized that the the whole service requirement around a product was something that Amazon just doesn't offer at all. I mean, there's nobody you know, to speak to at Amazon. So if you offer something highly differentiated like that, uh, offering an incredible service to pet lovers, et cetera, you can actually get a lot of traction with them as well. So uh, I guess there are other ways in which you can think about building a relationship with your consumer uh, outside of Amazon and offering things, as you say, that are differentiated uh, significantly that, uh, uh, that will be effective. Um, I do well, want to uh, just switch think, gears a little. Oh, sorry, go ahead. A, they serve as an interesting one, Michael. I'm sorry. They, they serve as an interesting one, Michael, because the irony of that is um, their founder, uh, I think uh, uh, Ryan Cohen was his name. I, I remember reading an article on Forbes after they were acquired, and he referred to their 24-hour customer service as, quote-unquote, Zappos on steroids. Yeah. And so that's ironic in a way, right, because that was one of Amazon's, you know, initial – acquisitions, and they ended up beating them at their own game. And so I think it serves as a really interesting example of no matter how big of a company you are, you're never going to be able to be everything to everyone. And so if you're going to win, what is that area that Amazon's neglecting that you you can differentiate? And I think Chewy proved it can be done even in a very modern day. I think they were acquired in in just April of last year. So it, it really can be done. And the, the other thing, of course, they did was uh, incredibly effective target marketing. So they stayed under the radar for some time while they were building out their capabilities because they only focused on areas that they knew they could serve as opposed to going national too soon. And, uh, yeah, there's and a, that, there's a, that's, that, and that's, you know, you're seeing that also in venture now, right, with the, with the soft banks of the world taking over so much market share. You're seeing these folks like Rise Ventures and, and other areas where they're specifically trying to incubate companies in like the Rust Belt or in the like in the central United States because they realize that to your point, it's just too noisy and they don't have a chance with a hundred billion dollar fund sitting in Silicon Valley. So you kinda you kinda have to differentiate to win and, and it happens mm-hmm. all over the place. Last question for you, Charlie. I'd love to get your perspective on who are the best retailers or brands out there today meeting this challenge? Who do you admire the most? I'm gonna go ahead and just take our uh, take us out of this answer, Michael, because it seems like the dignified thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think for me, the brands that really impress me are the brands that are able to disrupt based on using a kind of age-old tactic that are sort of like slap to your head. Oh my gosh, how did I not think of that? So I referenced Warby Parker. Warby Parker, yes, they have a pithy name. And yes, they use a really expensive Brooklyn design agency. And yes, they're very good at deciding whether to use a therapy or a sans therapy font. But the thing Warby Parker did is like, you know, buying glasses online is hard. Why don't we just send you five and we'll prepay you to send you the four back that you don't want? Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's just like, it's so brilliant, right? They take an operational challenge that frankly, any head of supply chain at a private equity firm would be like, nope, that sounds hard. That costs way too much. 
they're like, dude, that's what the customer wants. So I always have really admired them for that tactic. And the other one that leaps to mind and, you know, candidly is one of the very few venture backed retail companies that you can point to and be like, holy cow, what a result is Dollar Shave Club, right? Like Mm -hmm. I know you have a predictable replenishment cycle. I know you feel like you're paying too much for razor blades. And by the way, like, Dealing with those cases now and like getting like trying to find someone and they're always out of stock, we'll just send you them in the exact same consumption cycle that you're doing it all the time. It'll be cheaper and you never have to lose your house or they never have to leave your house. I mean, it's just so simple, right? So I've yeah. always been really impressed by, by those things because, yeah, like there's a lot of great brands in the world. Like there's brands out there that are just like, well, we, we differentiate because we have a, more of a community. I, I don't know. I think it's a hard thing to, to really put my finger on and be impressed by. But those are two that came up with something so simple that just met a consumer need. And, and my, the one that I'm now um, really digging is sort of on the periphery of retail, Michael, is um, I started using this company called Freshly. Um, Freshly basically said, you know, there are the people that want to learn to cook, but there's also people that just want to eat healthy. They don't want any preservatives and they don't want to cook. And so we can put you, we can give you like really good chicken parm, but it's made with almond flour instead of bread so that you can say you're gluten free. You throw it in your microwave or your oven for three or 10 minutes, and then you have a really good 500 calorie meal, and it's all pre prepared and it's all non preservative free. I'm just blown away by how good their yeah. food is. And so, my, my wife and I, especially with an impending infant, are, are really pumped about the outcome of having something we can rely on for healthy food we don't have to cook. Again, solve a very simple need. I don't trust within the freezer section anymore, but if you send me fresh food that I'll eat within three days, I'm into it, especially if I don't have to do anything. So I just think that's a really good lesson for all of us is that we can get blinded by the complexity and tactics, but you have to solve a basic need to be really, really good. And then you can become that want and you can become that brand people really, really dig. I love those examples, Charlie. I think they are uh, really insightful. And uh, I want to say thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, I think this has been a, a great conversation. Uh, I've been speaking with Charlie Cole, as I say, the global chief e-commerce officer for Samsonite Corporation. And Charlie, good luck with the family. I hope everything uh, uh, goes well in these uh, wonderful changing days that you're experiencing. And uh, we will be right back here at Shopcast after a short break. So thank you, Charlie. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network only 12 percent of companies from the original fortune 500 list remain on the list today how do you ensure your organization stands the test of time at carney works with fortune 500 companies every day to answer this question visit atcarney.com to find out more The American consumer market will soon include six generations for the first time. Prepare for the era of personalization and total connectivity with insights from consumers at 250. Join the conversation at atcarney.com forward slash consumers dash 250. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. 
When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're tuned in to ShopCast, talking retail strategy, featuring Michael Dart as your host. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to ShopCast, and I'm Michael Dart. My next guest is Bahij El Reyes, and he's a colleague of mine at AT Kearney and has just co-authored a study on what is happening in M&A around the world in the retail and consumer space. Welcome to the show, Bahij. Thank you for having me. I wonder, could you just provide a little bit of background on the study that you've completed, what it contains, and, and how you did it? For sure. Um, so essentially, it's a yearly M&A study that we've uh, done for the last few years. Uh, we surveyed around 80 executives from the retail and consumer space and uh, analyzed all the different transactions for the last few years to actually look at um, how do we see the M&A market evolving in the next few years. And essentially, we are at interesting times right now because um, we are sitting at a time where big disruptions are happening both in the retail space and the consumer one. Uh, mm-hmm. So we wanted to have the backward-looking view as well as the forward-looking view to be able to, uh, to look at what are the key trends. And what are some of the key trends that, uh, that you've seen as part of this study? So, yes, the, the first one is basically, you know, M&A has been accretive, right, in the last few years, according to many executives. And the stock market has rewarded uh, executives and and companies that have done M&A in a good way. And basically, as we look forward, uh, we're seeing a few things. First, um, we're looking at uh, the market being driven by uh, adjacencies. So uh, big um, companies are are looking at M&A, um, to, um, to, to drive and reignite growth. And they're looking at convergence opportunities and, and adjacencies. So if you look at deals like um, uh, General Mills with Blue Buffalo, uh, you know, where they're going into pet food, that's an example of an adjacency. In retail as well, where basically retailers are inc- increasingly in- investing in uh, tools and technologies that allows them to capture new customers. Uh, so that's one of the key things that we think that will drive the market next year. Uh, and what do you mean? You mentioned convergence as well. What, what do you mean by convergence? So convergence is basically two industries uh, that usually would operate side by side, and now they're converging, right? Like the snack, food snacking market and the pet food market coming together. And basically, the uh, you know, companies are converging those two industries together. Another okay. is brick and mortar and, and e-commerce, right? So that's another example of, of convergence that we see. And the, the Blue Buffalo acquisition, quite frankly, was pretty outstanding, both in terms of the, uh, the price they paid and also what it means for, I guess, a lot of pet specialty retailers as well, uh, because that was prior to, I guess, General Mills really acquiring them, almost exclusively sold in a few places, but uh, presumably General Mills is going to blow that out across the country. Is that, is that part of the rationale for that, do you think? I think there is. That's, that could be one part of it. There's also another one, which is it's a premium brand that mm-hmm. is resonating with consumers. And today, consumers, one of the big things we're seeing are moving away from big brands and basically looking at brands that tell the story or premium brands. And Blue Buffalo definitely fits into, into that space. And so basically what they're looking for is how can they be relevant to, the consu- to, to consumers. 
And th that's one of the rationale that I think, or the main rationale is basically, they want to be relevant to the consumer across multiple facets of brands, and, and Blue Buffalo is one of them. And whether they're going to go to the mass market or not, we're starting to see Blue Buffalo getting penetration in, in a, big, uh, a big brand retailers, um, definitely, but it's still in a differentiated positioning than remain, remaining brands. That's interesting. And, and, and your report is called, Can M&A Reignite Consumer and Retail Growth? Why did you pick that particular title and what are the implications that you were trying to get at? Yeah, so basically, um, we're, we're, we're seeing a battle for top-line growth. Uh, you know, we've had in the consumer space decades of companies implementing 3G type of approach to, you know, take out costs and bottom line has been growing, but top line has not grown, you know, more than 1% to 2%. So that's on the one side, on, on the consumer side. On the retail side, same, same story, both with Amazon and, and uh, you know, coming in and both with the discounters coming in and, and really competing with, with the uh, mass retailers, we're seeing top line being increasingly challenged. So that's the landscape. Then on top of that, a lot of the consumer and retail companies are sitting on a lot of cash and a lot of dry mm -hmm. powder. Uh, so when we're looking forward, basically, you, you know, a lot of those big companies have, you know, one or two big opportunities to go and, and try to find accretive deals. And that's why, you know, based on the interviews we've done with the executives, almost 80% of them said that M&A is basically their last resort almost to try to reignite that growth. And that's what they're looking forward next year. So when, when you say that you, you think legacy consumer and retail companies are going to fight back, do you mean fight back by acquiring fast-growing, smaller-scale properties like uh, Blue Buffalo? Is that the way in which they're going to ignite their growth and, and picking up a lot of those types of companies, is, is, or is there something else? Yeah, there's, there's two things. One is, is what you just mentioned with the Blue Buffalo, which is basically seeking out more adjacent deals. And the second that they're fighting back is a lot of them are setting corporate venture funds uh, to mm -hmm. go after smaller brands. And you've uh, had many discussions with the prior, desk, uh, the prior guests before that talks about how smaller brands are basically gaining a lot of traction or brands really that tell a story. And a lot of those consumer companies, what they're trying to do is acquiring those smaller brands. But in our report, we say that they have to be careful because they really need to think about this corporate fund differently or maybe face those corporate funds becoming irrelevant. And, and the main reason for that is basically, if you look at the big food companies specifically, what, mm -hmm. what they've done is basically um, top-line growth has not significantly changed direction since they've set up those corporate funds. The growth has been limited to the small companies that they're buying. And the big change that we think needs to happen is basically those companies realizing they're, that they're buying a business model. They're not buying a company. And they're, you know, when basically you have Kellogg's, they're buying RX bars, RX bars should be considered as a business model. What is their DNA? How do they go to market? What's their innovation life cycle? You know, uh, so a lot of, you know, we've done one example, which is a benchmarking of the time from uh, ideation to um, a product hitting the shelf. A lot of the big food companies takes them in excess of two years. 
The smaller ones take them six months. So this shift from two years to six months is what those big companies need to learn from smaller ones, and that did not happen yet. Right. I often say, and it's one of my favorite expressions, is we've gone from craft foods to craft foods, and that's craft foods with a K to craft foods with a C, which is very much what you're talking about, is that the big brands and the big companies can't grow themselves, so they're picking up all of these small craft artisanal companies along the way and hoping that can ignite their growth. The big challenge, it seems to me there, and I'm curious if, if your report got at this, is around the culture and how you manage those organizations because uh, at least a lot of the startups and digitally native companies that I've come across have a completely different culture and approach to business than some of the larger established companies. And so much of the secret sauce is that business model, that speed, uh, that responsiveness to what's going on that uh, can easily be crowded out by the larger companies. And I'm curious if that's a big issue and and uh, what you've learned about that. Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest issues. And from all of the um, executives we talked to, you know, they point that out. Um, you know, especially as you're looking at, um, you know, the example from craft to craft to the sea, you know, those are very different cultures. Those are different philosophies. You're putting teams uh, that, you know, um, behave differently um, and basically, you know, how do you bring those two organizations together? And basically what we think that winners would have is the ability to rethink their operating model, whether it's the speed to market, whether, how, you know, how to create rotation among the key positions that, 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 that you know, across both companies, um, you know, how to um, rethink um, the synergies because synergies between uh, you know, a pet food company and a snack company are between, you know, very different you know, companies with different business models is not as straightforward as a pure play consolidation. So those are interesting times ahead of us, and that's why we think that, um, that this adjacency move that we've been talking about is going to create unique opportunities, but not every company is, is ready for that. Mm-hmm. One of the big criticisms that people have of M&A is that it increases the risk uh, so, so last question, Bahij, uh, I'd love to ask you, and uh, and that is, is there a risk here with so much M&A activity that debt levels become uh, so great because of the financing, obviously, of these deals, that that impinges upon the companies, or, or are debt levels staying relatively static and this isn't an issue? No, definitely, that's a great question. We're seeing that debt level, you know, reach a, a peak also. Uh, and basically, that is, um, and especially with rising interest rates, uh, we think that, um, you know, really being able to um, achieve and unlock synergies is getting uh, even more under pressure. And that's mm-hmm. why we think that winners going forward are going to be those that find prized assets and, you know, and, and basically are able to, you know, launch a transformation. And that transformation, including changing themselves. Um, not only thinking about the target, uh, but really changing themselves so that they can adapt their business model, uh, especially when you look at adjacent deals and convert and convergence. Great. Well, Bahish, thank you for joining us and discussing that today. If you'd like a copy of our report, you can find it at the website on ATCarney, or you could email us at shopcast at atcarney.com, and we will respond and send it to you. But uh, Bahish, thank you for sharing those insights with us and thank you again to everybody who joined us for this edition of shopcast 
Thank you for listening to ShopCast, talking retail strategy. Please join host Michael Dart for another edition of the program next Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And check out past episodes at any time on demand. We hope you enjoy your week.